Section 15 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum, Bulletin 240, Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology, Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology, by the Museum of History and Technology. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paper 39, Fulton's Steam Battery, Blockship and Catamaran, by Howard I. Chappelle, Part Three. Naval Steamers, The Demologos, or Fulton the First. At the close of the year 1813, Robert Fulton exhibited to the President of the United States the original drawing from which the engraving on Plate One is sketched, being a representation of the proposed war steamer or floating battery named by him, the Demologos. This sketch possesses more than ordinary interest, from the circumstance that is, doubtless, the only record of the first war steamer in the world designed and drawn by the immortal Fulton, and represented by him to the executive as capable of carrying a strong battery, with furnaces for red-hot shot and being propelled by the power of steam at the rate of four miles an hour. It was contemplated that this vessel, besides carrying her proposed armament on deck, should also be furnished with submarine guns, two suspended from each bow, so as to discharge a hundred-pound ball into an enemy's ship at ten or twelve feet below her waterline. In addition to this, her machinery was calculated for the addition of an engine which would discharge an immense column of water upon the decks, and through the portholes of an enemy, making her the most formidable engine for warfare that human ingenuity has contrived. The estimated cost of the vessel was $320,000, nearly the sum requisite for a frigate of the first class. The project was zealously embraced by the executive, and the National Legislature in March 1814 passed a law authorizing the President of the United States to cause to be built, equipped, and employed one or more floating batteries for the defense of the waters of the United States. The building of the vessel was committed by the Coast and Harbor Defense Association to a subcommittee of five gentlemen who were recognized by the government as their agents for that purpose, and whose interesting history of the steam frigate is copied in Note A of the appendix to this volume. Robert Fulton, whose soul animated the enterprise, was appointed the engineer, and on the 20th day of June, 1814, the keel of this novel steamer was laid at the shipyard of Adam and Noah Brown, her able and active constructors, in the city of New York. And on the 29th of the following October, or in little more than four months, she was safely launched in the presence of multitudes of spectators who thronged the surrounding shores and were seen upon the hills which limited the beautiful prospect around the Bay of New York. The river and the bay were filled with steamers and vessels of war, in compliment to the occasion. In the midst of these, the enormous floating mass, whose bulk and unwieldy form, seemed to render her as unfit for motion as the land batteries which were saluting her. In a communication from Captain David Porter, U.S. Navy, to the Honorable Secretary of the Navy, dated New York, October 29, 1814, he states, I have the pleasure to inform you that the Fulton I was this morning safely launched. No one has yet ventured to suggest any improvements that could be made in this vessel, and, to use the words of the projector, 
I would not alter her if it were in my power to do so. She promises fair to meet our most sanguine expectations, and I do not despair in being able to navigate in her from one extreme of our coast to the other. Her buoyancy astonishes everyone. She now draws only eight feet three inches water, and her draft will only be ten feet with all her guns, machinery, stores, and crew on board. The ease with which she can now be towed with a single steamboat renders it certain that her velocity will be sufficiently great to answer every purpose, and the manner it is intended to secure her machinery from the gunner's shot leaves no apprehension for its safety. I shall use every exertion to prepare her for immediate service. Her guns will soon be mounted, and I am assured by Mr. Fulton that her machinery will be in operation in about six weeks. On the 21st of November, the steam frigate was moved from the wharf of Mr. Brown's in the East River to the works of Robert Fulton on the North River to receive her machinery, which operation was performed by fastening the steamboat, Car of Neptune, to her larboard and the steamboat Fulton to her starboard side. They towed her through the water from three and a half to four miles per hour. The dimensions of the Fulton I were length 160 feet, breadth 56 feet, depth 20 feet, water wheel 16 feet diameter, length of bucket 14 feet, dip 4 feet, engine 48 inch cylinder, and 5 feet stroke, boiler length 22 feet, breadth 12 feet, and depth 8 feet, tonnage 2,475. By June 1815, her engine was put on board, and she was so far completed as to afford an opportunity of trying her machinery. On the 1st of June, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the Fulton I, propelled by her own steam and machinery, left the wharf near the Brooklyn Ferry, and proceeded majestically into the river. Though a stiff breeze from the south blew directly ahead, she stemmed the current with perfect ease, as the tide was a strong ebb. She sailed by the forts and saluted them with her thirty-two-pound guns. Her speed was equal to the most sanguine expectations. She exhibited a novel and sublime spectacle to an admiring people, the intention of the commissioners being solely to try her enginery. No use was made of her sails. After navigating the bay, and receiving a visit from the officers of the French ship of war lying at her anchors, the steam frigate came to at Powell's Hook Ferry, about two o'clock in the afternoon, without having experienced a single unpleasant occurrence. On the 4th of July of the same year, she made a passage to the ocean and back, and went the distance, which, in going and returning, is fifty-three miles, in eight hours and twenty minutes, without the aid of sails. The wind and tide were partly in her favor and partly against her, the balance rather in her favor. In September she made another trial trip to the ocean, and having at this time the weight of her whole armament on board, she went at an average of five and a half miles an hour, with and against the tide. When stemming the tide, which ran at the rate of three miles an hour, she advanced at the rate of two and a half miles an hour. This performance was not more than equal to Robert Fulton's expectations, but it exceeded what he had premised to the government, which was that she should be propelled by steam at the rate of from three to four miles an hour. The English were not uninformed as to the preparations which were making for them, nor inattentive to their progress. It is certain that the steam frigate lost none of her terrors in the reports or imaginations of the enemy.' 
In a treatise on steam vessels, published in Scotland at that time, the author states that she has taken great care to procure full and accurate information of the steam frigate launched in New York, and which he describes in the following words. Length on deck, 300 feet. Breadth, 200 feet. Thickness of her sides, 13 feet of alternate oak plank and corkwood. Carries 44 guns, four of which are 100-pounders. Quarter-deck and forecastle guns, 44-pounders. And further to annoy an enemy attempting to board, can discharge 100 gallons of boiling water in a minute. And by mechanism, brandishes 300 cutlasses with the utmost regularity over her gunnels. Works also an equal number of heavy iron pikes of great length, darting them from her sides with prodigious force, and withdrawing them every quarter of a minute. The war having terminated before the Fulton I was entirely completed, she was taken to the Navy Yard, Brooklyn, and moored on the flats abreast of that station, where she remained, and was used as a receiving ship until the 4th of June, 1829, when she was blown up. The following letters from Commodore Isaac Chauncey, then Commandant of the New York Navy Yard, to the Honorable Secretary of the Navy, informing him of the distressing event, concludes this brief history of the first steam vessel of war ever built. U.S. Navy Yard, New York, June 5, 1829. Sir, it becomes my painful duty to report to you a most unfortunate occurrence which took place yesterday at about half-past two o'clock p.m., and the accidental blowing up of the receiving ship Fulton, which killed twenty-four men, and a woman, and wounded nineteen. There are also five missing. Amongst the killed I am sorry to number Lieutenant S. M. Brackenridge, a very fine promising officer, and amongst the wounded are Lieutenants Charles F. Platt and A. M. Mull, and Sailing Master Cloth. The former dangerously, and the two last severely. There are also four midshipmen severely wounded. How this unfortunate accident occurred, I am not yet able to inform you, nor have I time to state more particularly. I will, as soon as possible, give a detailed account of the affair. I have the honor to be, sir, very respectfully, J. Chauncey, Honorable John Branch, Secretary of the Navy, Washington, U.S. Navy Yard, New York, June 8, 1829. Sir, I had been on board the Fulton all the morning, inspecting the ship and men, particularly the second invalids, which had increased considerably from other ships, and whom I intended to ask the department permission to discharge, as being of little use to the service. I had left the ship but a few moments before the explosion took place, and was in my office at that time. The report did not appear to me louder than a thirty-two-pounder, although the destruction of the ship was complete and entire, owing to her very decayed state, for there was not on board at the time more than two and a half barrels of damaged powder, which was kept in the magazine for the purpose of firing the morning and evening gun. It appears to me that the explosion could not have taken place from accident, as the magazine was as well or better secured than the magazines of most of our ships, yet it would be difficult to assign a motive to those in the magazine for so horrible an act, as voluntarily to destroy themselves and those on board. If the explosion was not the effect of design, I am at a loss to account for the catastrophe. I have the honor to be, sir, very respectfully, J. Chauncey. 
Honorable John Branch, Secretary of the Navy, Washington. Appendix. Note A. Steam Frigate. Report of Henry Rutgers, Samuel L. Mitchell, and Thomas Morris, the commissioners superintending the construction of a steam vessel of war to the Secretary of the Navy. New York, December 28, 1815. Sir, the war which was terminated by the Treaty of Ghent afforded during its short continuance a glorious display of the valor of the United States by land and by sea. It made them much better known to foreign nations, and, what is of much greater importance, it contributed to make them better acquainted with themselves. It excited new enterprises. It educed latent talents. It stimulated to exertions unknown to our people before. A long extent of coast was exposed to an enemy, powerful above every other on the ocean. His commanders threatened to lay waste our country with fire and sword, and actually, in various instances, carried their menaces into execution. It became necessary for our defense to resist, by every practicable method, such a formidable foe. It was conceived by a most ingenious and enterprising citizen that the power of steam could be employed to propel a floating battery, carrying heavy guns, to the destruction of any hostile force that should hover on the shores or enter the ports of our Atlantic frontier. The perfect and admirable success of his project for moving boats containing travelers and baggage by the same elastic agent opened the way to its employment for carrying warriors and the apparatus for fighting. The plan was submitted to the consideration of the executive of an enlightened government, Congress, influenced by the most liberal and patriotic spirit, appropriated money for the experiment, and the Navy Department, then conducted by the Honorable William Jones, appointed commissioners to superintend the construction of a convenient vessel under the direction of Robert Fulton, the inventor, as engineer, and Mr. Adam and Noah Brown as naval constructors. The enterprise, from its commencement, and during a considerable part of its preparatory operations, was aided by the zealous cooperation of Major General Dearborn, then holding his headquarters at the City of New York, as the officer commanding the 3rd Military District. The loss of his valuable counsel in conducting a work which he had maturely considered, and which he strongly recommended, was the consequence of his removal to another section of the Union, where his professional talents were specially required. The keels of the steam frigate were laid on the 20th day of June, 1814. The strictest blockade the enemy could enforce interrupted the coasting trade and greatly enhanced the price of timber. The vigilance with which he guarded our coast against intercourse with foreign nations rendered difficult the importation of copper and iron. The same impediment attended the supplies of coal heretofore brought to New York from Richmond and Liverpool. Lead, in like manner, was procured under additional disadvantages. These attempts of the enemy to frustrate the design were vain and impotent. All the obstacles were surmounted. Scarcity of the necessary woods and metals were overcome by strenuous exertions, and all the blockading squadron could achieve was not a disappointment in the undertaking, but merely an increase of the expense. So, in respect to tradesmen and laborers, there was an extraordinary difficulty. Shipwrights had repaired to the lakes for repelling the enemy in such numbers that, comparatively speaking, 
few were left on the seaboard. A large portion of the men who had been engaged in daily work had enlisted as soldiers and had marched under the banners of the nation to the defense of its rights. Yet, amidst the scarcity of hands, a sufficient number were procured for the purpose which the commissioners had in charge. An increase of wages was the chief impediment, and this they were enabled practically to overcome. By the exemplary combination of diligence and skill on the part of the engineer and constructors, the business was so accelerated that the vessel was launched on the twenty-ninth day of October amidst the plaudits of an unusual number of citizens. Measures were immediately taken to complete her equipment. The boiler, the engine, and the machinery were put on board with all possible expedition. Their weight and size far surpassed anything that had been witnessed before among us. The stores of artillery in the New York, not furnishing the number and kind of cannon which she was destined to carry, it became necessary to transport guns from Philadelphia. A prize taken from the enemy put some fit and excellent pieces at the disposal of the Navy Department. To avoid the danger of capture by the enemy's cruisers, these were carted over miry roads of New Jersey. Twenty heavy cannon were thus conveyed by the strength of horses. Carriages of the most approved model were constructed, and everything done to bring her into prompt action as an efficient instrument of war. About this time, an officer, preeminent for bravery and discipline, was commissioned by the government to her command. Prior to this event, it had been intended by the commissioners to finish her conformably to the plan originally submitted to the executive. She is a structure resting upon two boats and keels, separated from end to end by a canal fifteen feet wide and sixty-six long. One boat contained the cauldrons of copper to prepare her steam. The vast cylinder of iron, with its piston, levers, and wheels, occupied a part of its fellow. The great water-wheel revolved in the space between them. A main gun-deck supported her armament, and was protected by a bulwark four feet ten inches thick of solid timber. This was pierced by thirty portholes, to enable as many thirty-two-pounders to fire red-hot balls. Her upper, or spar-deck, was plain, and she was to be propelled by her enginery alone. It was the opinion of Captain Porter and Mr. Fulton that the upper deck ought to be surrounded with a bulwark and stanchions, that two stout masts should be erected to support lateen sails, and there should be bowsprings for jibs, and that she should be rigged in a corresponding style. Under authorities so great, and with expectation of being able to raise the blockade of New London by destroying, taking, or rooting the enemy's ships, all these additions were adopted and incorporated with the vessel. It must here be observed that during the exhaustion of the treasury and the temporary depression of public credit, the commissioners were exceedingly embarrassed. Their payments were made in treasury notes, which they were positively instructed to negotiate at par. On several occasions, even these were so long withheld that the persons who had advanced materials and labor were importunate for payment and silently discontented. To a certain extent, the commissioners pledged their private credit. Notwithstanding all this, the men at one time actually broke off. The work was retarded, and her completion unavoidably deferred, to the great disappointment of the commissioners, until winter rendered it impossible for her to act. Under all this pressure, they nevertheless 
persevered in the important object confided to them but their exertions were further retarded by the premature and unexpected death of the engineer the world was deprived of his invaluable labors before he had completed this favorite undertaking they will not inquire wherefore in the dispensations of divine providence he was not permitted to realize his grand conception his discoveries however survive for the benefit of mankind and will extend to unborn generations at length all matters were ready for a trial of the machinery to urge such a bulky vessel through the water this essay was made on the first day of june eighteen hundred and fifteen she proved herself capable of opposing the wind and stemming the tide of crossing currents and of being steered among vessels riding at anchor though the weather was boisterous and the water rough her performance demonstrated that the project was successful no doubt remained that a floating battery composed of heavy artillery could be moved by steam the commissioners returned from the exercise of the day satisfied that the vessel would answer the intended purpose and consoled themselves that their care had been bestowed upon a worthy object but it was discovered that various alterations were necessary guided by the light of experience they caused some errors to be corrected and some defects to be supplied she was prepared for a second voyage with all practicable speed on the fourth of july she was again put in action she performed a trip to the ocean eastward of sandy hook and back again a distance of fifty-three miles in eight hours and twenty minutes a part of this time she had the tide against her and had no assistance whatever from sail of the gentlemen who formed the company invited to witness the experiment not one entertained a doubt of her fitness for the intended purpose additional expedients were notwithstanding necessary to be sought for quickening and directing her motion these were devised and executed with all possible care suitable arrangements having been made a third trial of her powers was attempted on the eleventh day of september with the weight of twenty-six of her long and ponderous guns and a considerable quantity of ammunition and stores on board her draught of water was short of eleven feet she changed her course by inverting the motion of the wheel without the necessity of putting about she fired salutes as she passed the forts and she overcame the resistance of the wind and tide in her progress down the bay she performed beautiful maneuvers around the united states frigate java then at anchor near the lighthouse she moved with remarkable celerity and she was perfectly obedient to her double helm it was observed that the explosion of power produced very little concussion the machinery was not affected by it in the smallest degree her progress during the firing was steady and uninterrupted on the most accurate calculations derived from heaving the log her average velocity was five and a half miles per hour notwithstanding the resistance of currents she was found to make headway at the rate of two miles an hour against the ebb of the east river running three and a half knots the day's exercise was satisfactory to the respectable company who attended beyond their utmost expectations it was universally agreed that we now possessed a new auxiliary against every maritime invader the city of new york exposed as it is was considered as having the means of rendering itself invulnerable the delaware chesapeake long island sound and every other bay and harbor in the nation 
may be protected by the same tremendous power. Among the inconveniences observable during the experiment was the heat endured by the men who attended the fires. To enable a correct judgment to be formed on this point, one of the commissioners, Dr. Mitchell, descended and examined by a thermometer the temperature of the hold between the two boilers. The quicksilver, exposed to the radiant heat of the burning fuel, rose to 116 degrees of Fahrenheit scale. Though exposed thus to its intensity, he experienced no indisposition afterwards. The analogy of potteries, forges, glasshouses, kitchens, and other places where laborers are habitually exposed to high heats is familiar to persons of business and of reflection. In all such occupations, the men by proper relays perform their services perfectly well. The government, however, will understand that the hold of the present vessel could be rendered cooler by other apertures for the admission of air, and that on building another steam frigate, the comfort of a fireman might be provided for, as in the ordinary steamboats. The commissioners congratulate the government and the nation on the event of this noble project. Honorable alike to its author and its patrons, it constitutes an era in warfare and the arts. The arrival of peace, indeed, has disappointed the expectations of conducting her to battle. That last and conclusive act of showing her superiority in combat has not been in the power of the commissioners to make. If a continuance of tranquillity should be our lot, and this steam vessel of war be not required for the public defense, the nation may rejoice that the fact we have ascertained is of incalculably greater value than the expenditure, and that if the present structure should perish, we have the information never to perish, how, on a future emergency, others may be built. The requisite variations will be dictated by circumstances. Owing to the cessation of hostilities, it has been deemed inexpedient to finish and equip her for immediate and active employ. In a few weeks everything that is incomplete could receive the proper adjustment. After so much has been done, and with such encouraging results, it becomes the commissioners to recommend that the steam frigate be officered and manned for discipline and practice. A discreet commander, with a selected crew, could acquire experience in the mode of navigating this peculiar vessel. The supplies of fuel, the tending of the fire, the replenishing of the expended water, the management of the mechanism, the heating of shot, the exercise of the guns, and various matters can only become familiar by use. It is highly important that a portion of seamen and marines should be versed in the order and economy of the steam frigate. They will augment, diffuse, and perpetuate knowledge. When, in process of time, another war shall call for more structures of this kind, men regularly trained to her tactics may be dispatched to the several stations where they may be wanted. If, on any such disposition, the government should desire a good and faithful agent, the commissioners recommend Captain Obed Smith to notice, as a person who has ably performed the duties of inspector from the beginning to the end of the concern. Annexed to the report, you will find, sir, several statements explanatory of the subject. A separate report of our colleague, the Honorable Oliver Wolcott, whose removal from New York precluded him from attending to the latter part of the business, 
with his accustomed zeal and fidelity, is herewith presented, a drawing of her form and appearance by Mr. Morgan, as being like to give satisfaction to the department, is also subjoined, as are likewise an inventory of her furniture and effects, and an account of the timber and metals consolidated in her fabric. It is hoped these communications will evince the pains taken by the commissioners to execute the honorable and responsible trust reposed in them by the government. Samuel L. Mitchell, Thomas Morris, Henry Rutgers. End of section 15.